Would you open your Bibles, please, to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 2. Today we'll be considering verses 21 to 40. Now, uh, Eddie just read a portion of this. He read verses 25 to 35 earlier. So I'm not going to read through the, the text, the whole text, as we get started. We'll just uh, take up these first three verses and then go to the Lord in prayer. Or four verses, rather. And at the end of eight days, eight days following his birth, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And then, of course, he is greeted first by Simeon, whom I think is a good inference, doesn't say explicitly, but I think we can infer from the text that he is rather elderly. And then there is a woman who greets him, a prophetess by the name of Anna, and she is obviously, the text says explicitly, she is quite elderly. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we consider this passage. Father, we come to you your needy people. We need, Father, what you alone can provide. We need good for our souls. We need to see not only the truth of Jesus, the fact that he came, the events that made up his life, We need, Father, for the salvation of our souls to see the worth of Christ, the beauty and the glory of Christ. Unless you give us eyes to see, we will never see on our own. Give us your grace. As you have given us so much already, give us grace in this hour. I think of that passage in in Romans 5, Father, that says that By faith, we enter into this grace. We have access to this grace in which we stand. So I pray, Father, that everyone here would long for this grace and have the faith in Christ to receive it. I know that you desire to pour out on us your good. You long to give us your blessing in Christ. May we have the faith to receive this grace. We ask, Father, for these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. A famous preacher of the 20th century by the name of A.W. Tozer once famously said, What comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Now, from Luke chapter 2, this passage before us today, we're going going to apply Luke 2 to that particular statement. 
And we're specifically going to say this. What comes to mind when I, when you, when we think about God the Son is the most important thing about me, about us. What comes to mind when we think about God the Son is the most important thing about us. Now, A.W. Tozer wasn't saying that to to say that we somehow, by thinking good thoughts of Jesus, add good to him, as though he had some kind of lack, some kind of deficiency that we have to make up for. And he certainly wasn't saying that by thinking thoughts that were less than worthy of him, we could subtract away from his character, his attributes, his perfection. It's not that what you think about Jesus adds anything to him or certainly subtracts anything away. It's all about what this says about you, actually. Your thoughts of him don't say so much about him as they do about you. Your thoughts of Jesus reveal who you are. How you relate to Jesus reveals who you are which is an astounding thing to say about any historic individual, isn't it? I mean, we wouldn't even say that about, say, George Washington. George Washington was a great man. He was a great president of the United States, one of the the founding fathers. We know all of this. But we would never say that our thoughts, complimentary, praising, or critical of George Washington, would reveal fundamentally who we are, my thoughts of who George Washington is and was don't reveal fundamentally who I am. He's not that important. So this is really an incredible thing that we are saying about this individual, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the watershed figure of history. All of history divides on him. That's why we have B.C. before him and A.D. after him before Christ and in the year of our Lord. All of history divides on him. And what we're going to see in this text today, which Eddie read a moment ago, as Simeon directs his prophecy to Mary specifically, we're going to see that not only does Jesus divide history, he divides all people. We fall on Christ or we rise in Christ. Thinking rightly of Christ, believing in Him, we rise never to fall again. But thinking wrongly of Christ, refusing Christ, without repentance, we will fall never to rise again. So what you think about Jesus, what comes to mind when you think on Christ, is the most important thing about you. So we need to consider, again, who is this Jesus? Born in Bethlehem, raised up in Nazareth of Galilee, first century Palestine, there on the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Who is this individual? We need to think about this very, very carefully. Now let's slow down a little bit. In verses 21 through 24, we see that there are four acts of obedience. And they tell us something about Jesus that is important, very important, in fact, crucial for us to consider. 
this little part of the narrative, these four verses, don't seem to be on the surface all that important. They're not exactly attention-grabbing, but they are very important. Again, four acts of obedience. The first three acts, or let's talk about three acts first, that are all in obedience to the law that God had given to Israel through Moses. First of all, on the eighth day following Jesus' birth, he is circumcised. This was according to the law. It was be, uh, it was traced back, of course, to Abraham, but given specifically in the law to Israel at Sinai, that on the eighth day following birth, every male baby was to be circumcised. And so it was with Jesus. The second two acts come together, acts of obedience, come together when Jesus is six weeks old. The first is that having given birth, it is required by law that Mary must be ceremonially purified. When a a woman in Israel had given birth to a male child, this would happen after 40 days. And so it was required of Mary to offer two sacrifices, a burnt offering and a sin offering. And the option was there that they were to, for a burnt offering, either give a lamb, a one-year-old lamb, or if the couple could not afford a lamb, they were to give a turtle dove or a pigeon. And then for the sin offering part of it, again, a turtle dove or a pigeon. So we see here that this young couple is obviously poor. They're not able to afford a one-year-old lamb. And so in obedience to the law of God, they offer the birds for a burnt offering and for a sin offering. The second act of obedience that this trip to the temple fulfills is that Jesus, as the firstborn son, must be dedicated to God. We find these two laws, the ceremonial purification of Mary and the dedication of Jesus to God as the firstborn son in Leviticus chapter 12 and also in Exodus 13. So three acts of obedience that all conform to God's commandment given in the Old Testament era. Jesus is circumcised on the eighth day, and when he is six weeks old, his mother is purified, and he is dedicated to the Lord. The fourth act of obedience is not submission to what God had given to Israel through Moses in the Old Testament, but rather a commandment that God had given particularly to Joseph and to Mary. Mary received the commandment before Jesus was even conceived. The angel Gabriel told her, it's recorded in Luke chapter 1, that she was to name her son Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, it's recorded that following the conception, when Joseph was actually inclined to divorce Mary privately, they were considered technically legally married, even though they were in the betrothal period. When it was found that she was of child, he was inclined to put her away privately, not bring any kind of scandal or shame upon her publicly, that an angel appeared to him in a vision, and he was told at that time that it was right, it was necessary for him to take Mary as his wife, because the child within her had been supernaturally conceived of the Holy Spirit. And the angel required of Joseph that he call Mary's son Jesus. The name means Yahweh saves. The Lord is salvation, is what the name Jesus means. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But 
four acts of obedience. And each of these acts of obedience remind us of this. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. There is no salvation for us in Jesus if Jesus does not live for us before he dies for us. He is not only our representative, our substitute in death, he is our representative, the head of the human race, the second Adam, the substitute for us in his life as well. There is no righteousness that we can have as uh, credited to our account to render us acceptable to God if Jesus does not first fulfill all righteousness required by the law in his life before he dies. Okay? Let me say that again. There is no righteousness to be had if Jesus does not fulfill all righteousness required by the law in his life. We often forget that not only did Jesus die for us, it's so crucial, of course, that we emphasize that. We boast only in the cross. But we often do forget that Jesus lived for us. And that was just as essential for our salvation as his death. Let's move on to the following verses. Beginning in verse 25. Here we have the first appearance of Jesus to the public. And there are a few people waiting for him. It says in verse 25, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. One of these first few individuals to greet Jesus in his first public appearance is Simeon. I think it's a good inference from this text, although it doesn't say explicitly that he is elderly. Simply by what it says about what had been revealed to him, that he would not see death, before he had seen the Lord's Christ, and then what he says when he takes up the child in his arms about now you are letting your servant depart in peace, I think it's a safe inference that he is elderly. He is a resident of Jerusalem. The Bible says that he is righteous and he is devout. That means that he is careful to obey the commandments of the Lord, just as Jesus' parents, Joseph and Mary, were careful. It also says that he is waiting for the consolation of Israel. He is waiting for the comfort from God to come. And it says the Holy Spirit is upon him. Simeon has also received a very personal revelation from God. He has received this word that he will not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ until he has personally laid eyes on the promised one of God. So think about Simeon on this day when he receives this new revelation from the Spirit 
that today is the day. Now, he's devout. He's righteous. He is careful about obedience to the Lord, and he's a resident of Jerusalem. So he has made his way to the temple, no doubt, many, many times. Much like we'll see of Anna a little bit later on. So he has traveled the same old streets, turned the same old corners, and climbed the same old steps to the temple probably more times than he could ever remember throughout his life. So this day, he turns the same old corners, down the same old streets, but this day is altogether different from any other day ever. He hurries on in the spirit. And can you imagine what flutters he feels in his stomach? What hurry there is in his steps? Because he is on his way to the temple in the spirit to see Jesus. He is there when the parents arrive. There is nothing that on the surface stands out about this young couple. There is no glow about them. They're not welcomed to the temple area by the blast of a trumpet. It's not that the crowd before them parts like the Red Sea parted for the nation of Israel back in the days of the Exodus. It's not like that. They are so utterly ordinary. But the Holy Spirit of God moves Simeon to them. And he takes this little one, this baby, who is the Lord of heaven and earth, up in his arms. The first thing that we see him do, beginning at the end of verse 28, all the way through verse 32, is that he turns to the Lord and prays. That's his first thing. He turns to the Lord in praise for God's salvation. And then we see him, in verse 33 and following, turning to Mary to prophesy concerning her son. So let's read beginning at the end of verse 28 again. It says, He blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Who is this little one? That's the question that we're considering. Who is this Jesus? Did you know that there were many Jesuses in first century Palestine? In fact, I mean, we could imagine... I, I was reading earlier this morning because I wanted to double-check this there have been discovered the tombs of more than 70 who were known by the name of Yeshua, that is the, the Hebrew pronunciation of this name, Jesus. There were more than 70 uh, that they have discovered the tombs of in uh, that would date back to the first century in, in Palestine. So just at this time, let's say that we're going to go low in our estimation, okay? Let's say that there are 50 baby boys. There is likely several of them who are known by the name Jesus. 
So there are many male Jesuses in his time, and probably a few of them who are of the same age. What is special about this one? What is special about this Jesus? It's this. There were many Jesuses, but only one who does and is what the name Jesus signifies. Only one. He is Jesus, and he is what his name signifies. I said it earlier, do you remember? He accomplishes our salvation, and he is in himself the salvation of God. There is only one salvation. And that's clear from what Simeon says. Now my eyes have seen your salvation. The Apostle Peter would preach much later, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is only one salvation. This common idea that all of us religious types who don't share faith in Jesus in common, still share salvation in common, is one of the devil's greatest lies. There is salvation in no one but Christ. He is God's one and only salvation. But, Simeon says, he is not for only one people. He is not for only national Israel. He is the gift of God's love to all peoples, to all of the world. For Jews, to use Paul's terminology from Romans chapter 1, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile, Jesus is the Savior of all people who believe in him. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God shines in only one face. But that light radiates from Jesus to all of mankind. And this is what Simeon praises God for. So first of all, we see him turn to the Lord and praise for salvation. Now we see him turn to Mary, specifically to prophesy over her son. To this point, everything that Mary has heard about her son, who is truly the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, has been glorious, which is fitting. He is glorious, and everything that is said about him should be glorious. He should have a glorious life. He should accomplish the work that God has given him to do gloriously. We should expect that everything said about him will just be wonderful and great and will leave us in awe and wonder and and bowed before him. So when Simeon talks and he praises the Lord, it is more good. Mary looks on and she listens intently as more good is said about her son. All that she's heard, again, is, it has been good. From Gabriel to the, the song of Zechariah to uh, what the, the shepherds conveyed had been delivered to them from the angels, everything has been good. And now Simeon adds to that more good for, more good revelation concerning her son for, for Mary to treasure and ponder in her heart. So now another revelation. And this one is different. This one is different. There are some glorious words here, but there are also 
is foreboding words. In a sense, ominous words. So now she looks up into this elderly man's eyes that pierce deep into her own as he delivers another prophecy concerning her baby boy. And this is what he says. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword, Mary, will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now, I think that Mary has already suffered for being the mother of the Son of God. After all, his conception was virgin. There would have been a certain shame and scandal around that. But I think really for the first time, Mary is realizing that throughout her life, there will be a great price for her to pay personally for being the mother of the one who is the Son of God. We'll come back to this in a moment. But with these words from Simeon, another woman appears on the scene, and we haven't read these verses yet, and so let's go to them, beginning in verse 36. Another woman appears on the scene. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. And we're not very certain about what those specific words mean. If It could be that she had lived as a widow 84 years, which would possibly make her up to 105 years old at this moment. So there's, we're not sure about the, the translation exactly. Ours says, and then as a widow until she was 84, but of course it's accompanied by that footnote that notes the possible difference. She did not depart from the temple, more importantly, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were awaiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna and Mary are at opposite ends of the life spectrum. Mary is at the beginning, really, as a young girl, possibly as young as 13, maybe more likely 14, 15 years old. But really, she's at the beginning of her life. All of her life is before her. Anna, the prophetess, is at the end of her life. But both of these women are strong in the Lord. They are among the few who say to God, let it be to me, whatever that might entail, according to your word. Anna is a widow. She's aged. She's, again, a prophetess. And she spends her nights, or her days and nights, speeding the coming of the Lord with her prayers. It says she never leaves off the temple She never forsakes, she never stops fasting and praying. And this is night and day. She is faithful. And like Simeon, her male counterpart, she knows who this little one is. 
She recognizes in him the redemption of God's people. Who is Jesus? Jesus is freedom. Jesus is the freedom that the people of God desperately need. Freedom that will come at a price. Redemption doesn't come without a cost. It doesn't come without a price. Jesus is that redemption. And as we will see, he is also the price to be paid for it. But Christ is freedom. Christ is freedom from sin and the penalty of sin. Jesus is freedom from death. Jesus is freedom from hell. That's what she recognizes. And so the first response of Anna, like Simeon, is to give thanks to God. She gives thanks to God. The second thing is that she speaks of him to all who are waiting in Jerusalem. So she also, she's doing what the shepherds did, you remember? The first thing she does is glorify God in heaven, and the second thing, she tells the world. Let's move on to verses 39 to 40. It says, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. We will talk more about these specific truths, Lord willing, next week, because verse 40 is paralleled in verse 52. Okay? So we'll talk more about this next week. But I want to home in back on Simeon's statement of prophecy over Jesus that he directs to Mary. Simeon said, he is appointed for the fall and the rise of many. And I said earlier that Jesus is the watershed figure of history. Now, for some of our younger uh, congregants here, let me explain what a watershed is. I'll use an example. Let's say that there is a river cutting through the land, flowing north to south. And as it makes its way, it meets a ridge of land. And at that ridge of land, it splits into two. Okay? That ridge of land at which the river divides into two is called a watershed. And that's what Jesus is in his person in his life, in his ministry. He is the watershed figure of history. We all fall or rise on Christ without exception. As I said earlier, he is the division for all of history, before Christ and after, before Christ and in the year of our Lord. It all divides on him, but also he is the divide for all people. And what comes to mind when we think about him is then the most important thing about us because it reveals who we are and it reveals what our end is, where we are headed. Jesus is the dividing line. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not 
see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John chapter 3. 1 John 5 says, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's as simple and plain as that. Jesus is the dividing line. As Simeon put it, with him comes the rise and the fall of many. So how you relate to Jesus reveals who you are. If you are with him or against him, in him or apart from him, it reveals who you are and where you will end. If you are not in him, if you are not united to Jesus by faith, you will fall never to rise. If you are in him by faith, you will rise to life and you will never perish. But I'm going to say something that many may take as hard and might at first come with misunderstanding, but I think that in our culture, the, the preachers of, for the church and for the world in this day must say this thing, must preach this truth. Many people will rely on Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and in the end perish. Many people will rely on Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and in the end perish. How can that be? How is that possible? Believing the word of God as we do. It is not that Jesus fails to save. But listen, anyone can believe the truth of Jesus and everyone wants to go to heaven. Anyone can believe the truth of Jesus. Anyone can believe that He is the Son of God, that He came to this world and lived a sinless life in the place of sinners. Anyone can believe that He died for sinners upon the cross and that God raised Him up on the third day. Anyone can believe that He is coming again. It is not required that the Holy Spirit persuade us, convince us of these truths. Anyone can believe these historic facts and even spiritual truths. In a sense, I call them spiritual. And again, everybody wants to go to heaven. Consider this example from the scriptures. If you are wondering if the preacher has suddenly turned heretic. In John chapter 2, it says that seeing the signs that Jesus did, many believed on him. But he would not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in the heart of man. Think of this example from John chapter 12. It says, Many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So, people believed in him. They believed that he was the Messiah who were not truly saved. So, I will say again, it's possible for many people in what we call this region of the country, the Bible Belt, to be relying on the historic Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins who will in the end perish. Because if you believe in the truth of Jesus 
And if you don't want to get, go to uh, hell, you will trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. But here's what we need to ask people. What do you want forgiveness for? What do you want it for? Because forgiveness is not the end. Forgiveness is a means to an end. What do you want on the other side of forgiveness? To put it this way, where does the highway in your heart end up? Where do your hopes take you? You will never escape hell if escape is all you seek. So, listen, those people that I put in that category earlier of relying on Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins but perishing in the end, may all, maybe all they want is to escape from hell. You will never escape hell if escape is all you seek. You will never see the comforts of glory if comfort is all that you want. If that's the hope on the other side of forgiveness, forget it. And that's why I believe that many will hear, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, many will say to him in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many wonders in your name? And he will say to them, depart from me, for I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness. I want everybody here to examine their heart. I will examine mine. Let me ask you, if you had all your hopes for happiness fulfilled in this very moment, what would you hold in your arms? If you had all your hopes of happiness fulfilled right now, what would you have? Do you want the world or do you want Christ? If you had all of your hopes for happiness fulfilled right now, would you have health? Or would you have the one who heals all of our diseases? Would you have wealth? Or would you have the one in whom are all the treasures of God? Would you have peace for your life? Or would you have the one who bought it with his blood? Would you settle for less? Or do you long for the one who is all in all. Would you have love? If you had all your hope of happiness fulfilled in this very moment, would you have love in this life? Or would you have the beloved of God? I want to be careful. I want you to realize that what I am asking you to examine your heart and life for and test yourself for are not, at this moment, the requirements to be justified. We're looking for the results of justification. Not what is required to be born again and have the Spirit, but rather what is the result of having the Spirit? Are you captivated by the glory of God? Do you truly believe in the worth of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you believe that Jesus is the treasure of heaven and earth? Does your soul thrill to be an heir of God?
This is what is the result of being born from above. This is the life of someone who has been made new. Think about our culture. Think about our conservative area of North Louisiana. How many people would be able to check off the fact that they believe in the historical Jesus? How many would be able to check off all of these conservative uh, staples of conservative doctrine? How many believe in creation and not evolution? How many despise abortion and protest gay marriage? There are many who have all their doctrinal ducks in a row. Do you have a problem with Joel Osteen? Check, 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 double check. None of that means anything for the salvation of your soul. There are a lot of people here in the Bible Belt who protest gay marriage, and rightly so, who only uphold what the Bible says about sex, who only uphold the historic Christian sexual ethic in those things that they don't find personally restrictive. They protest gay marriage on one hand, but they may very well sleep around, cohabit, engage in sex outside of marriage. What does the Bible say about the sexually immoral who are sexually immoral without repentance? It says those who are sexually immoral will not, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you have highways in your heart to Christ? When you are alone, do your thoughts turn to Jesus fondly? Do you commune with your Lord in the secret place? When you sin, not if you sin. When you sin, we all stumble in many ways. Do you sin on happily? When you turn away, do you stay away? Do you sorrow to grieve him? Is it happiness to be restored to him? Anyone can believe in the truth of Jesus. The demons believe, it says in the book of James, and tremble. But is your soul alive to Christ? Is your heart after Christ? Is your faith in Jesus working through love? In your heart, do you find Christ wanting of pleasure, of joy, and of satisfaction? Or do you find the Jesus Christ revealed to us in the Word of God irresistible? The Bible says that Jesus is the watershed. He is the dividing line. We either fall on Christ or we rise with Him. What comes to mind when you think about Jesus is the most important thing about you. How you relate to him reveals who you are. Father in heaven, we turn our hearts to you, knowing, Father, that we do stumble in many, many ways. 
And Father, when we carefully examine our hearts for the appropriate, fitting affections of Jesus that we should have, we tremble because we know we all stumble in many ways and all fall short of the glory of God. I pray, Father, that with that state, none of us would be content. None of us would be satisfied. I pray that all of us would repent and continually repent. I pray that we would constantly be changing our minds about who Jesus is. I pray, Father, that constantly we would bring our thinking, our desires, our affections, our hopes into conformity with what is required and what is fitting of Christ. We cannot save ourselves. Only you can save us. Jesus is your salvation. Jesus is the redemption of our souls and our bodies. All of our hope is in him. And because of him, all of our praise is yours. In his name we pray. Amen.